Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So welcome to another episode of the Science of Sport podcast. Uh, my name is Mike Finch and as usual I'm here with Professor Ross Tucker and today we tackle a subject which is uh, bound to cause some divisions amongst our listeners. Some of you may support uh, some of the uh, concepts and the ideas which we're going to be uh, talking about today. Some of you might say well it's all rubbish and uh, we should be looking at other elements of it and it's all about early competition in, in young sport and uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about some of the evidence that exists around that sort of space maybe some of our own opinions particularly from Ross on that area and uh, some of the feedback we've had from uh, not only the people on our listening platforms but also from people on our social media that have contacted about this and really that was the idea and that's where the idea came from initially anyway so we're going to be sharing that a little bit later but to kick things off as usual we're going to be starting with a caught my eye and Professor Ross Tucker is going to be getting on with that uh, very shortly but before we get on to that Ross I mean I know we both did the Cape Town cycle tour on Sunday uh, which was always an interesting one we did very different tours I did it on single speed which I've never done before and surprisingly enough it wasn't as bad as I thought it's about 1200 meters of climbing and I thought when I started doing this on a single speed I was really going to suffer I did on the final climb of the day when the first half of that climb really sort of kicked in I had to I have to admit, had a bit of a, a bit of a walk on my uh, on my cycling <laughs> shoes, but uh, I got back on the bike and I managed to get to the top of the hill. But it was interesting yeah. because people are, who are told that I was doing the single speed thing on the cycle tour said I was crazy and nuts and you shouldn't be doing that sort of thing. But actually, it, it's funny how you when you've got one gear to play with, how far you can get and what you can actually achieve, what you can do when you go up a hill. You would not normally be in a gear like that on a geared bike but you do manage to get up on a big gear bike so it was an interesting thing you rode with your girlfriend most of the ride and uh, had a, another social we were both pretty social on the day yeah. weren't we? yeah it was fun because there are no cars it's the only time yeah. you get a completely closed route mm. maybe the bikes are more dangerous than some cars the way That's some people are. ride them but it was fun i mean I've, it's been 20 years since i did that race mm. Mm. really and yeah yeah i did it oh. last in 2002 so 21 sure. years Okay. Um, between races. I mean, Some for those are doing their 30th, 40th, 50th one, and I'm only doing mm. one every 20 years. But yeah. anyway, it's a, it was cool. Enjoyed it. It's an amazing event. I mean, for those of you not familiar with it, the Cape Town Soccer Tour is the advertised as the biggest time cycling event in the world. And there are grand fondos in New York and all sorts of various places around the world that are bigger. But this is timed and uh, close to 28,000 people across the two distances. There was, I think there's 23,000 in the in the 109 kilometer distance and about four or 
thousand in the in the forty two k shorter distance, which they introduced this year. So if you're listening from overseas and you're a mad cyclist, um, come and join us next year at the Cape Town Cycle Tour. It really is an amazing event, and uh, I would advise the best way to do it is the way that Ross and I did it. We stopped. We had coffee at the sort of 25 <laughs> Speak for mark. yourself. I didn't do that. I, didn't I did stop that. for coffee and I stopped for breakfast. And at the end, I had a few beers before I rode home. So it was uh, it was a very nice day and a beautiful weather, which is unusual for the Cape Town soccer tour. Normally, the wind blows so much that uh, everybody's complaining about the wind. So that's at the Cape Town soccer tour. Um, then on to your court by eyes, Ross, your first one, a little bit about something that we normally talk from a woman's perspective about this condition, but this was uh, one of our listeners getting hold of us around reds in men. Yeah, so these are not my caught my eyes. They are caught, mm. these are things that have caught the eyes of our patron followers. So patron, as you know, is a little community where you can pledge some support for the price of a cup of coffee or mm-hmm. uh, extra large cappuccino with extra cream if you want to go higher tier. You can pledge some support to us monthly and then I'm trying as much as I can uh, to share a newsletter every week that supplements this podcast. And then we invite you to send in things that you've been uh, struck by, whether it's a social media post like this one, a news article, a sports performance, and a scientific paper, whatever it is. And we'll get onto some of those today. The first of which is Jonathan Halliwell, who sent us a tweet by a guy called Jake Smith, whose name I'd heard, didn't know much about him. He's actually a long-distance runner out of England um, with a 60-minute 30 half-marathon PB. So that's pretty rapid. And he posted something on Instagram of himself standing there with crutches and a fairly lengthy post in which he says, I'm writing this post to explain the impact the term Red S has had on my life physically and mentally. For those who don't know, and this is him still, (laughs) Red S is a medical condition caused by a simple mismatch between energy intake and expenditure. Now, coincidentally, I did an interview on the radio this week with John Matham, and he'd seen an article by a Pippa Wolven, who's a steeplechase athlete, also from England, who has actually just set up an Instagram page called Project underscore Red underscore S underscore, in which they're trying to now grow awareness of this condition and help people who are suffering from it. Remember, we we discussed this twice in season two or three. I forget. And just to so remind we, listeners, it's let me get this right. It's um, relative energy deficiency syndrome in sport. In sport. In sport. Yes. Yes. And so the name is pretty descriptive of what the condition is caused by. So it can happen irrespective of your level of athletic performance. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, Jake Smith and. Pippa Wolven are elite athletes, but it could happen to someone who's like us doing a cycle tour if our energy intake is insufficient relative to our energy output. Mm. So whether you're training eight hours a week or 18 hours a week at high intensities, if you don't eat enough and put in the energy that's required to at least balance what you are expending through your daily activities and your training, then what happens is the body starts to go into a, let's call it... Um, What's the word? What, what, are, what are they? Yeah, what do they call it when the when the markets just run slowly, like a bear mode? Yes, okay. <laughs> the bull and the bear economies. That's the the body basically says, listen, if there's no energy here, I'm shutting off what's not essential. Mm. We're going to turn off reproductive function, and so in women, for instance, menstrual dysfunction is often the first presentation. In men, it's very low testosterone levels. Then the other consequences, bone regeneration and remodeling slows down to the extent that you develop low bone mineral density, which eventually leads to osteoporosis. It presents as stress fractures, which is exactly what Jake Smith is talking about when he shows a picture of himself with crutches. He says in his post he's got stress fracture of the sacrum. 
there's hormonal issues that develop. There are metabolic, there are gastrointestinal, psychological, sleep disturbances, a number mm. of different things. And so many years ago, remember, it used to be called the female athlete triad, mm -hmm. and it was low energy availability, bone mineral density issue, or low bone mineral density, and um, menstrual dysfunction, menstrual dysfunction yeah. in females. REDS is now a broader classification for two reasons. One is the presentation is not limited to bone and menstrual function or reproductive function. It's also hormonal, psychological, sleep, etc. And it affects men. Mm. And that's the point I wanted to make with, with um, the caught my eye that Jonathan sent in. I think that was his point also, is that this is this is a condition that can happen to men, especially- It's common amongst men though, isn't it? I mean, is there any reason why it's more common amongst women? Um, in part because the menstrual cycle imposes a, yeah. a, a periodic cycle of energy demand that changes over the month. Men don't have that complexity. The metabolic Maybe they pick it up easy in women. That's Potentially. possibly the case, and so certainly something to be very aware of is that there might mm. be many undetected cases among men. I suspect it's a bit of both. I think mm. it probably is more common in women, in the same way that anemia, osteoporosis, are more common in women because mm. of the menstrual cycle, right? Mm. Um, but but yeah, I think the, the key point is that any athlete who is susceptible to a low energy intake because of weight concerns in their sport, another reason that might be more relevant for women, right? And in this instance, talking long distance runners, cyclists, athletes in combat sports who have to make weight, that cycle that you mm. go through to make weight for a fight and then you can rebound afterwards, I mean, they're losing kilograms in the week or two before a fight. Yeah. That's not metabolically healthy. So they are creating this erratic metabolic situation, part of which causes reds for short periods over time, big problem. So yeah, people need to be aware that this is not a condition that is unique to women and can affect men also. And we have done this in a, in a past podcast, and we'll put that in the short notes, uh, in the show notes afterwards, where you can uh, read up and listen to one of the podcasts we did in that. Because one of the big questions that it, it, it's we, we have to ask in this situation is, amongst women, it's so common for elite women to struggle with things like menstrual dysfunction and and the red and the red S um, condition that you know you almost can't be at the top of your game unless you're suffering from it. Whereas for men, it's probably not as critical. Is that would that be a fair a fair comment, or do you think for men that that's just as critical? It can, as you say, once somebody's got a stress fracture because of bone deficiency issues, they're out of competition. I think it's just as critical, and I suspect mm. that there are a lot of women athletes who just go on and on and on and on until it becomes so bad. In fact, we spoke about this to Amelia Boone, yeah, who was the ultra distance runner, ultra trail runner, especially. Mm. And her story is a classic example. You just push through it because it's almost expected. Yeah. And being amenorrheic for a long period is kind of part of the price you pay to be a good runner. Because and then a woman loses a menstrual function. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So initially it's irregular periods and then eventually absent altogether. Yeah. And, and so many women and their coaches even are just saying, you know, that's actually what we think happens. It's expected. It's mm. part of the price you pay. Mm. And that's why... You know, the, 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 the coverage that it gets, this um, Pippa Wolven has now made it a project of hers to create awareness and education. Trent Stellingworth, who we spoke to, is equally passionate. The IOC's got a position paper on it. Mm. There's actually a lot now. I'd like to think that it's it, people who believe it's necessary and acceptable are now in the minority. Mm. But I suspect it's the same. I reckon marathon season coming up wouldn't surprise me if a coin toss would decide who has mm. <laughs> symptoms of red S and they're racing through it. Yeah. 
you know it's not it's not one in ten yeah it's much higher yeah and that's probably equally true on the men's and the women's side mm. but you know the body it's amazing how adaptable it is you can just It'll, keep going and going and going until eventually you fall off the cliff yeah but don't that's that's where jake is and that's where pippa was and that's what you want to not be yeah. yeah, yeah, And okay, on to uh, another subject, and this is an interesting yeah. one because uh, let, let's before we actually get into it, let's just hear this clip. But this is a the very well known Yumba Visma Yumba Visma cyclist uh, Primoz Roglic talking about a new supplement which he's been asked to take and review. And this presumably is their promotional interview in which he's going to endorse it. It's funny for that reason. My name is Primoz Roglic. Um, ex-ski jumper now rider for Jumbo Visma. Can you tell me about the first time you tried the Morton bike up? Uh, I think we used it uh, like two years ago, something like that. Mm. And yeah, it was, uh, let's say, uh, easier to to take it and easier to, to digest. Did it work well for you? <laughs> uh, it's a tough one, huh? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, when you're good, it works good. When you're not, it uh, it doesn't work uh, good. So, uh, uh, yeah, in theory or how they say, yes, it uh, it works. Like, I'm not going to ask you to say, make up something. Just, yeah, yeah, just, because, just, just I mean, talk. yeah, with 600 watts, it always hurts. So it's hard to say either it works or not. Huh? You can imagine better taste for sure, huh? Uh, like, uh, ice cream or whatever but uh and also the feel in the stomach but it's okay yeah you you can go with it huh? so yes you you can take it and yeah is there anything you want to say about it Good about? hope it works well also in the future <laughs> So not the kind of uh, endorsement <laughs> that you'd expect. I suppose in the advanced world of marketing these days, any kind of mention is a good mention, but he doesn't exactly rate baking soda now as his new one supplement, well, does he? <laughs> well, it's a little bit more than baking soda, but I yes. I saw that and I got the impression he hadn't really been briefed. Man, I don't <laughs> well, know. They still put it out there. They put it media. out there. Yeah, yeah. Because like to set the scene, and I'll put the link so you can watch it, it's sort of black and white, mm. and he's sitting there and he's cycling bibs introduces himself and then he's asked for his testimony about this product which we'll talk about shortly and uh i thought it was funny 600 watts always hurts which is true <laughs> but but i mean i wouldn't go buy it on that basis no but on the basis of the scientific evidence f for its original benefits going back 40 almost 40 years i'd be interested mm. and now the promise is that you can have the benefit without the downside. And that was always the thing with this particular supplement. So this is Merton, which is a very well-known yeah. um, supplement brand, bringing out this baking soda for sports people. So, well, I mean, what yeah, is it's not, it? What it's is, not, it's what, not baking soda. I mean, well, it's, it's bicarbonate. It's bicarbonate. Yeah, which, so, yes, which you so. can find in your cupboard <laughs> yes, if you yes, bake often as yes. baking soda. So what's the idea but, behind it? But, but when, yeah, okay. So let's, let's go to bicarbonate first. Yeah. yeah, that's what you're asking. When we do in this particular high intensity exercise, we are metabolically burning through our ATP reserves and fuel, glycogen, glucose, lactate, mm. in order to provide the energy to keep that high intensity effort going, right? So a 400 meter race, a 30 second burst, uh, the last 300 meters of an uphill finish in the Tour de France, etc. right? Mm -hmm. Now, the consequence of that high metabolic rate is that we produce hydrogen ions from the breakdown of ATP to AMP, ADP, and phosphate ions from the 
creation of lactate, which instantly creates, well, lactic acid instantly becomes lactate and hydrogen ions, right? Those hydrogen ions cause the pH levels to drop. And there's evidence that that lowering of the pH in our cells compromises muscle function. So theoretically, if you can increase the pH levels, effectively providing a buffer that prevents acidosis by adding a base, which is what bicarbonate does, then you would protect the muscle function against that failure or fatigue that would otherwise slow you down. Make yeah. sense? Yeah. So way back in the 1980s, and I went on to PubMed and I looked, and I, the very first article I could find on this was published in 1984. Sure. And it was a study that was done by a David Costell, uh, Capers is on there and Fink. These are very famous exercise physiologists in the field. Like from the 70s and 80s, these were the guys. And so they did this in 1984, clinical trial called acid-base balance during repeated bouts of exercise influence of bicarbonate. Okay, so 10 men and one woman do these one minute cycling bouts times five. And then the last one, they just ask them to continue for as long as they can as a performance trial. So it's high intensity, four, four times one minute, and then a trial to fatigue at high intensity. Mm-hmm. And they give them either 0.2 grams of a sodium chloride, which is a placebo drink per kilogram, or 0.2 grams per kilogram of, of uh, um, sodium bicarbonate, right? Mm-hmm. Now, for an 80 kilogram person, that's 16 grams of sodium bicarbonate. It's quite a lot, actually, which will become important shortly. What they find is that when you take the bicarbonate, your time to fatigue was 42% longer than when you took the salt. First time that it had been shown that you could improve performance by buffering the effects of high intensity exercise. And their conclusion is the alkaline, alkalizing influence of oral bicarbonate supports the concept that the hydrogen ion concentration in blood and muscle has a direct influence on performance. So remember this back then, they were still figuring out, like, why do we slow down when we sprint? This was actually quite an important study to kind of build the picture, right? Yeah. But also a study that said, here's a supplement that you could use to improve performance. And over the course of the next decade or two, a number of studies were done. By 1988, a systematic review reported 29 studies. By the early 1990s, there were hundreds of studies. And then it kind of went away. And the, the, one of the problems was, and I remember reading these studies when I was in high school doing 800-meter races and thinking, this is gold. And I remember taking baking soda and having some before training, and I was very ill. Mm. I didn't throw up but I was almost going to, more than usual for an 800 meter race. (laughs) Because what happens is you put all this baking soda in your stomach and you feel nauseous. Mm. If it affects you different ways, you get diarrhea, Mm. like really, really bad. And that's why it probably never really took took off the way that it might've done given its performance benefits, right? What Martin are saying, or Morton, how do you say Morton? Morton, Morton, as far as I know, yeah. Morton. What Morton are saying is that they've used the same technology that they use to package carbohydrates inside what they call the hydrogel. They've applied that to bicarbonate mm. and are now saying you can take this thing without that side effect of gastro, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting. Mm. And so here's the benefit without the cost mm. or the downside. Because that seems like quite a significant benefit. Well, 40, 42% would be ridiculous. Yes. So that's probably not the case. I mean, do we know um, what all those other research studies, was there always... But was there always evidence that there was an improvement? In varying sizes. That first right. one was probably one of the largest right. um, for reasons I don't know. I mean, yeah. it was, again, it's 10, 10 people, 10 men, one woman, 11 yeah, yeah, in total, yeah. right? It's not enough of a sample, yeah. 
but but the the systematic reviews and i mean one from 1993 so this was almost 10 years on overall performance was enhanced but the range of effect sizes was large mm. sometimes very small sometimes very large in studies that measure time to exhaustion an average 27 percent increase in duration so even that, i mean that's a lot that's not a lot yeah okay. especially at an elite level yeah i mean <laughs> at an elite level 2.7 is a lot yeah, never mind 27 yeah. Yeah. in 2022 an article was published a meta-analysis on this and there's other buffers as well by the way there's mm. uh, citrates and so forth sodium citrate sodium bicarbonate and this study also concludes the same thing is extracellular buffering um, supplements generate large increases in blood bicarbonate concentration, positive overall effects on exercise, sodium bicarbonate being most effective. So there's yeah. something that definitely works. It's, yeah. I can it's see not, all our listeners, their wives are going to go do the baking on the weekend and realize there's no bicarb left. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're going to see things happen before they realize the absence of baking soda <laughs> to tell them there's a problem because husband is going to be in the toilet for yes, a long time. Yeah, if it's he not gets advisable, this yes. And like, like this is really a problem. I mean, I like I say, I played around with it once and I felt really ill. I thought, no, that's not worth it. Hmm. But if, uh, if sounds like this product that that um, Merton have got seems to have some level of credibility. Well, well that's the claim they're making. So they've, yeah, so they've they've funded some studies now, and mm. they will, I assume, come out and then be fund then be tested independently. Mm. And, then, and then, if the independent tests verify the uh, funded tests, then you can probably sit and say, you know, there's something something going on here. Mm. But but yeah, they. They're saying a couple of things. Is one is that their product keeps the bicarbonate levels elevated for a long time. Baking soda was a pretty short-lived couple hours and gone. They're, they're saying that their product elevates it for nine, ten hours. That Niels van der Poel, the speed skater who we've spoken about a couple of times, mm. says that he was using it and taking it the night before mm-hmm. and getting a benefit the next morning sure. because it's the the hydrogel tech keeps it elevated for that long. That's the that's a claim. Okay, that's anecdote, not mm-hmm. data. Um, and they're saying that it's they're promoting it as the one percent for the one percent because mm. they reckon only one percent of people use it, mm. and they're selling it as one percent benefit, which is which is small. I mean, mm. but other studies are saying four percent. I take four percent. Four percent wins you a sprint finish in a bike race, and sure. so yeah. Sure. Um, and 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 if it is one percent or four percent, then Roglic won't notice it. Mm. And especially when he says like 600 watts is always hard, which is quite mm. funny. Mm. That's 600 watts or 606 watts. You don't notice mm. that as a cyclist, mm. but it might be worth half a bike wheel. Yeah, you so, might see to the results. So, so if I'm being sympathetic <laughs> to to the the, the product um, promotion that he did for them, it's probably not fair to ask a guy, "Did you notice it?" Because at that intensity, like you're on the limit, and like if it's one or two percent at that mm. effort, yeah. Then he's almost going to be racing. He's almost going to have a flat-out race with it and without it against the same person in the same space and yeah. figure out whether he's going to be faster. Or exactly, not. and that's where and that, by the way, is why lab trials sometimes I think inflate the effect mm. because it's like so controlled mm. and there's really only one thing that you'll, f- which is what you need in a scientific study, but its translatability by scale into the real world doesn't always work. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, it's 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 hell of expensive. Mm. Uh, I think I saw a price quoted. Let me tell you, it's not going to be widely used at these prices. That's for sure. Um, uh, Probably not widely available for a while. I imagine in most places around the world. Yeah, sixty euros for four doses. So wow. that's fifteen okay. euros. What's it now? That's about the same as the dollar, right? Mm. I mean, it's three hundred, almost three hundred rand a dose. Mm. That's like yeah. a meal. Yeah, sixty dollars. <laughs> that's uh, a meal for one dose yeah. of this thing. Yeah, yeah. 
So mm. not dissimilar. In, so then the question is like, okay, if it's that expensive and it's that beneficial, and by that beneficial, I mean a couple percent, mm. same as doping, Yeah. then why is it not and should it not be considered? But obviously you can't ban baking soda. No, no. So uh, mm. it's not that different from ketones which we've discussed yeah exactly and five years ago maybe more ten years ago ketones were probably in the experimental phase mm. just like this product is that bicarb's been around since forever yeah but this product now is is where ketones were ten years ago being used by professional athletes they swear by it it's very expensive quite mm. difficult to get hold of if you're not willing to spend the money and worth probably one or two percent and Yamba Visma have always seemed to be at the, the sharp end of this stuff because they mm. were the first guys to really push the ketone story yeah. and now they're pushing this. So yeah. I suppose they're trying to find those marginal gains, aren't they? That's exactly. <laughs> and I mean, as I say, Morton talk about 1% for the yeah. 1%. So everyone's still looking for those, which is, yeah. I mean, you have to. If you find 5%, everyone would call you up on it immediately. Yeah. <laughs> I need 15% at least. But we me. need to, look, we should try it on our ride on Friday. I should yeah. and if you need to get some of the stuff, I don't think I'm willing to take baking soda out the out the kitchen cupboard quite yet. But if you can get you know, some like, of the product, I don't know if our listeners overseas will have it, but we've got like a thing for indigestion called Eno. Yes, and you know, and Rennie's Eno and Rennie's the yeah. same same kind of thing. Like Eno's one normal dose is two grams, mm. so you would need five of those. Well, a lot so of people say Rennie's when they Sorry, suffer need, when they take suffer from cramps. Yes. So at the soccer yeah. to this weekend, I saw a couple of chaps uh, uh, sort of dealing in Rennies as they were going up there. I think <laughs> Rennies is widely available overseas, as far as I know, as an antacid. Is it? Yeah, I think so. But yeah. for those of you who know antacids, um, you know, it's a very reg- it's quite popular here in South Africa. But a lot of people take Rennies yeah. on rides because so the I idea think is how it's, you feel after one Rennies and you, yeah. you start getting a bit bloated, mm. you need eight or nine of those, mm. depending on your weight, to get between two and three grams per mm. kilogram body weight. Mm. Imagine how you'll feel after mm. the sixth, seventh, and eighth. Mm. One. Like chalk. And then try and sprint. <laughs> yes. And then try and do something that like makes could make you nauseous even without any well, you, supplement. You take it on Saturday and I won't take it and see if you can <laughs> see if you've improved. <laughs> we'll let you know. Right. Anyway, so an interesting yeah. one then. That was that was incidentally a couple of people, but Martin Roman sent that one to us on, on Patreon. So thanks for that, Martin. Good good chat, good discussion. Great. Um other testing stories, the the, the game of Shinty, which is the <laughs> Scottish Yeah. Uh, the best described as a sort of violent version of uh, field hockey. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're, they're testing. They're testing for doping, aren't they? Yeah, it's a Scottish Gaelic game, basically, mm. and it looks a lot like hockey. You can play with both sides of the stick or the cannon, mm. I think they call it, um, and you can hit the ball out of the air, and you can check. It's a little bit like ice hockey on grass mixed with curling and lacrosse and mm. hockey, basically. Quite well known for being quite dangerous. And uh, what's happened is Gareth D, who's a new patron follower and got in touch with us. Thanks for this, Gareth shared with us an article that was published BBC Scotland a couple of weeks ago ahead of their opening weekend of their season in which he's saying that Shinty are going to be doing drug testing of all the players. So they've commissioned and paid UK Anti-Doping to do a anti-doping campaign in Shinty, which is a purely amateur sport. There's mm. no professional, there's no prize money and so forth, but they're going to drug test. And the rationale for this, according to the president, is he wants to reduce drug taking in the game so that he can deal with the societal issue around recreational drugs. Okay. And Gareth wrote in and said, in his opinion, this looks like a massive waste of resources because Shinty, by all means, have the money to spend. But UK anti-doping have to, their mandate is elite athletes, professional athletes. Mm, and to, mm. and I, I don't know, I, I tend to agree, like 
And we, we have the same thing in South Africa. You see it in England all the time. They'll test all the amateur rugby players and a lot of times they get done for cocaine because yeah. it's not related to rugby. It's a, it is a societal issue. But now in a world with relatively scarce resources, should a sport be spending those resources on a societal issue? Mm. I don't know. I suppose depending on your a bit perspective. It's overreach, doesn't it? It feels like it to mm. me. Mm. And then the funniest of all is... Uh, he says, yeah, we're just keen to support our communities, our clubs and the players themselves to lead as a healthy lifestyle as possible. Testing was introduced in the 1990s, but not extended on the grounds of cost. So now, I mean, it's not like it's cheaper, <laughs> so it's still going to be costly. Yeah. He says, this is the president, McKenzie says, potential punishments have not been decided and the association is mindful of the fact that the sport is amateur. We aren't looking to ban anyone here. So then what, what, uh, what are you doing actually? Like what? So... You get you catch guys often for recreational drugs, mm. or because they play on the weekend, but they want to use drugs in the gym, get a bit mm. bigger. You know, that's now you're being the parents. <laughs> it's a bit patriarchal, mm. almost like big brotherish. Yes. Ah, it just doesn't to do with the sport, more to do with whether you want your your people that play the sport to live a clean and healthy life. Yeah, and what problem is that's it of yours? Really your, Unle- not really unless, your problem, is it? Unless you're in a contact combat sport environment and you really have a legitimate concern that people are using mm. steroid hormones and getting powerful enough that it becomes a safety issue. Yeah, that's what I'm going to think could, about. You suggest. could maybe rationalize it like that, but look, it's a it's a contact sport and it looks fairly aggressive, but it's not MMA and boxing. No, <laughs> no. So I can't, I, I wouldn't be persuaded by that argument. Um fairness is always important yes i get that mm. but i don't i don't know it's just if i drew up a priority list it wouldn't be on it <laughs> yeah i don't know how low you'd have to go on a priority list to find it but it wouldn't be on the first page yeah, yeah. for sure yeah for sure yeah so that was gareth oh, there you go. gareth actually sent a couple of other ones and so did jonathan hallowell actually mm-hmm. his was on women's and men's tennis in response to our podcast a month or so ago with mm. richard sutton mm. but i said to him we'd we, we're still looking to do a tennis episode, so we'll park that one for that discussion. And then Gareth also had a really interesting one because now you may know that esports are being introduced. And he says, What will the anti doping look like for esports? <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting it's big, one. So. It's professional and it's big money. Exactly. There's a lot to lose so, if you but then is there, to gain. What, what would the doper do there? I mean, stimulants, right? Beta blockers? Yeah, but then, uh, yeah, and no, that's, that's like, the exact it's opposite. About, it's about golf. It's like what golfers would take. You need concentration and calmness. Look, I'm so, I'm so in, in clueless when it comes to e-games, but don't you have to be quite alert? Yeah. So then yeah. maybe you'd and want a stimulant. calm. I don't know. Look, because beta block is slowing you down. They also calm you down, so you yeah, can but think more clearly. I yeah. don't know. See, this is how little I know about esports. Mm, mm, mm. But there's a lot to gain if you have, have yeah, yeah, a chemical they're, they're, advantage. I reckon esports. Big money. Would, if esports came into the Olympics, they'd be in the top third of paid oh, athletes at the Olympic Games. For sure, for sure. So, anyway, there's an article that uh, that uh, Gareth shared on drug issues in the esports world, mm, and mm. so we'll we'll save that for future. Yeah, yeah. And uh, some sad news. Uh, we just heard of the, the last week or so the the death of Dick Fosbury, who was the famous uh, inventor of the Fosbury flop, um, which was. Uh, 68 Olympics. Well, that's when it made its sort of global yeah. debut, and he won the Olympics in that. And by 1972, three quarters, no, maybe just mm. under two thirds of the field was using it. Yeah. 
And by and it was a radical move back then because previously they used to do the scissors. Yeah, there were there were various techniques. There was a scissors. There was an eastern roll. There was a straddle. Mm. Straddle. Yes. And 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 you know what? A big amazing thing? how many what heights they used to reach with those. Unbelievable. Very in fact, awkward movements. The Fosby floppers seem so good now, but when you look at some of the old footage of some of those old style yeah, high jumpers, yeah. they unbelievable how much height they can get. Yeah, it's amazing. And I saw actually a, <laughs> um, a video the other day of the the. Guy from Qatar, Bashim, you know, the high mm, jumper. Yes, yes, yes. And it, yeah. it was a video of him doing a scissors. He's like a piece of spaghetti. Also it? unbelievable. Like, it's just, and he was doing that technique and he was really? jumping, but that you just can't get as high as you can with a Fosbury flop no. for the simple reason that the Fosbury flop allows you to jump, allows you to jump so that your center of mass is below the bar. Mm. You don't have to elevate your center of mass as high as when you do the scissors mm. in the Eastern Roll. Mm. And that was the genius of the of the method mm. and that's why by 1976 and 1980 it was the only method being used yeah. because everyone realized that it wasn't it wasn't like you were a meter better but mm. you were 10 centimeters better and that's that's last verse first at that level you know mm. Mm. so and and it's interesting because i actually met fosbury in maine and we when we had burgers and milkshakes at Did a you? diner yeah that's I had amazing a, i had a friend um who was really close with him and billy mills he was the 10k yes. athlete he won the 10,000 remember in the olympics in 64 mm. was mm. it i forget i think yeah and uh, that sort of similar era yeah and i was mm. i was visiting her and her husband in maine and she said listen we're gonna go out and have dinner with a friend of mine do you mind i said no worries this wow. was dick fosbury that's incredible. He couldn't believe it it was amazing and he was saying like he was he said oh, i was lucky very humble yeah. I was lucky because my school and my university had great facilities and we had these really soft mats. Mm. He says, if I hadn't had access to good mats and if I had to land on harder surfaces, I probably wouldn't have been brave enough to try it because the technology and the equipment allowed him to innovate. Yes. But then the innovation drove different things like, you know what I mean? So mm. it was actually a iterative process of mm. just trial and error. And he didn't know that it was going to work. Yeah. He, just, he just couldn't perfect what he was being asked to. And so mm. he tried new stuff. And sure enough, he, f he came across the best thing to do. Amazing. It's a crazy idea, but I often think when I look at that, the invention of that, has anybody thought since then of a better way than yeah. that? And if there was, is it allowed? In other words, if somebody comes along right. and jumps a higher height that's not doing the Fosbury flop, are they legally able to do that? And I assume they are. It doesn't matter what technique you use as long as, not, you're, yeah. as long as you're clearing the bar without I, touching it. I would guess so, right? Yeah. And I mean, apply that to other scenarios. What if you line up in the backstroke? <laughs> yes. Yeah, you, it's pretty constrained what you can do. Yes. In fact, there was controversy, right? It wasn't well, around you do a backstroke stroke, in a breaststroke manner. I don't know. I don't, I don't or, know. or butterfly. like, yes. or, or, but, but, but you know, that's exactly the point. Yes. I mean, in tennis, you can serve underarm if you want. No one does because yes. it's ineffective. Yes. And you just think about how difficult it is to find something. Nick Kyrgios better. has served underhand before in a game. Yeah, and sometimes one points is everyone. <laughs> yes. Um, it's, think about how difficult it is when a lot of people are doing something mm. to actually innovate that much in one go. Mm. It's it's almost impossible. Like it's mm. if there are hundreds of people looking to be yeah. better and better and better, and you come along and you find something. It's it's Fosbury must truly be one of the great. Innovators, innovators ever in the history of sport yes because like, i can't think of a parallel yeah. you can talk about the clap skates and the swimsuits and the shoes and yes. so on but that's this is different right yeah. this is a significant change in the way something because of what done. someone does as opposed <laughs> yes. to what someone wears yeah. and there's no way else you can do that in any sport yeah you know, as far as i know you can't change the way you do backstroke yeah so so, so yeah if you showed if, if a martian landed on earth here today in the 2023 mm. and you showed him the olympic high jump competition from 21 
and then you showed him the Olympics from 64, mm. he'd say, two different sports. Totally. If you showed him tennis from 2023 versus tennis in 64, he'd also say two different sports. Mm. But the way they traveled that journey is so different because mm. in tennis, it was inch by inch, wood mm. became aluminum, aluminum became titanium, strings got better, mm. you know, and then mm. you had Djokovic, Nadal, Federer. Mm. Whereas Fosby changed it not, it wasn't overnight, yeah. but it, it was a, it's just a different way. It's yeah. amazing. It's, it's, I can't think of a parallel. Yeah. Incredible, it's a great story. Yeah, and sad. I'm sure sad there's a bo- I'm, I'm almost guaranteed there's a book about him somewhere along the line, and uh, I will try and find a book and put it in the show notes because mm. I think he'd be a great story to actually read. And yeah. almost guaranteed somebody's written a book about him. So I'll, I'll look yeah, that up. I, actually, I, I wouldn't surprise me if he's written a book of his own. You know, because yeah, yeah. after winning that in '68, he didn't continue. Didn't he? No, yeah, he decided well. he was going to go into the professional world mm. and not the world of sports. So it's just a, he was a fascinating guy. And, mm. you know, when I met him, he was, he was a, a counselor at a children's camp in Maine. That's what he was wow. doing with his free time. He was there mm. at one of those camps. You know, like you'd send your kids to when they're in gr- <laughs> grade 10, 15 years old, away for a weekend, learn how to make a tent, mm. learn how to build a treehouse. And yet his name will be part of athletic and history just, for all time yeah, to come. So, yeah, yeah. So, sad. And just on that, I'll post a link to an article David Epstein wrote, because, mm. you know, David also is a guy, speak about innovators. He's a guy who looks at something and says, I'm find something different. Mm. And he makes the point that Fosbury changed the shape of high jumpers because mm. Fosbury's technique allowed high jumpers to be taller because mm. suddenly you could be taller and you could start with a higher center of mass mm. because you no longer had to elevate it as much because of that curved back and mm. center of mass was now below the bar. So almost instantly, high jumpers were permitted by the technique to change the shape of their bodies. Mm. Again, the same as tennis, mm. the technology has allowed for bigger serving, serves become more important, tennis players have gotten taller. So yeah. it's another example, but, but in Fosbury's case, it's not tech. Mm. Well, part of it was tech. The maths allowed mm. a landing. Mm. But Fosby came along and just turned something yeah. literally upside down. Yeah. I mean, head first, back on his back, <laughs> looking at the sky, down. <laughs> amazing. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. And then the uh, final thing that you want to talk about is, is obviously a lot of feedback about, uh, on our Barefoot podcast, which we did uh, one back from now, um, talking a little bit about how people have experienced barefoot running and yeah. the positives and negatives. And they were both yeah. both sides of the spectrum talking about the positive, positives and negatives, even yeah. though our podcast talked about the fact that there is still not enough evidence to suggest that barefoot running is better or better for you than yeah. wearing and- yeah. I mean, we asked the listeners to share their experiences and they did. Yeah. And some of it was really good. Like uh, Paul Kelly wrote in, um, patron as well. Thanks, Paul. Who basically said that he he wanted, in back in 2010, 2008, 9 thereabouts, wanted to change his foot strike because he had knee issues. Yeah. And we spoke on the podcast that sometimes people have linked those knee issues to landing too much on the heel. And someone said to him, if you can land on the forefoot, midfoot, forefoot, you might be able to create softer landing. And and I don't think he would have known this, but what you do is you put a little bit more on the ankle, but you take it away from the knee. So it's a trade-off. It's like, where do you want it to be? So mm-hmm. when you've got a knee problem, it might be actually quite smart to try and say, let's take 20% of that, put it somewhere else, but maybe save the knee. So what Paul then did, which I thought was really interesting, he said, well, how do I make that shift? I can either make it consciously and start running on the front of my foot, or I can try barefoot running, which does the same thing without me having to think about it. And it turns out that that's what he did. And so he says, 
He basically went and ran up and down a rugby pitch until he felt competent in the in the Vibram shoes and eventually got himself up to running 10Ks, no problem. And now he's running in minimalist shoes with a wider front part of the shoe and he feels mm. great doing it. So he did it systematically mm. and he used barefoot running as a tool to try and get to the end point that he wanted, mm. which is really smart. And I think that's kind of like the take home message we mm. is be very patient, be very mm. systematic about it and just use it as a training module. Mm. And if you take to it really well, then it can become everything you do. If you don't, you're still getting benefit, but don't make it everything and then yeah. not adapt. Because always the temptation is people go straight into these minimalist shoes, yeah. wonder why they get injured, and then they say, well, barefoot running isn't for me. Mm-hmm. But as you say, the, 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 the most, the, the, the contemporary advice is to do exactly like that. Yeah. Get your body used to it, slowly build into it. And, right, uh, and that's why I'd say, and, and you could probably, there's, there's one level even lower than that, is that when you do a track session or an easy 8K, Last 400 meters, which is either your warm down or the last 400 meters from the end of your block to your house, take the shoes off and run them barefoot 400 meters and see what it feels like mm. a couple times in week one. If you like it and it feels good, keep going or go more. And just very slowly, like experience mm. what it's like to land on the... Because as, as we pointed out, at least half of people don't initially make the supposedly favorable adaptation maybe up to a third of people won't ever make it. Paul obviously is a, is a guy who could because mm. put the V-booms on and over time he became a competent mid four foot runner and now he's, that's how he runs thanks mm. to the method. But yeah, the, the point is try it slowly, listen, get the feedback from your body, try a little bit more, get the feedback, experiment. Basically. I mean, it's a, it's a little bit of a, maybe I shouldn't almost advise this, but one of the questions we get a lot of from, from on our readers at Runners World here in South Africa is people saying, what kind of shoe should I buy? Mm. So there's so much technology around these big stacked shoes now. And I always think, and you know, there might be a lot of evidence to suggest um, whether that's right or wrong, but normally, no matter what shoe you, you actually buy, you can adapt to it to some, to some extent. Mm. So. You know, people go into sh- into shoe shops and they buy stability shoes. And back in the old days, you had motion control shoes, which thankfully don't exist anymore. But normally, the body can adjust to pretty much anything given enough time, essentially. So whether you're running in barefoot, yeah. there are obviously people who don't adapt to barefoot. But if you're running in a, if you, you can't really buy the wrong shoes. You can just train wrong mm. because normally you will adapt. Exactly. Mm. And so the mistake they make is the new shoe, new type of shoe. Mm has to then fit seamlessly into the previous program and that's the error mm. and so and as we said last time when you go barefoot you, you actually can't go 8ks five times a week because mm. after one day your feet will be so sore Sorry. you'll know all about it in the yeah. shower like you'll be on fire yeah and so it forces you i think it created a new weakest link your skin mm. which then forced you to train slowly enough that your mm. other previous weakest links and that mm. muscles ligaments joints tendons got a little bit more time to adapt yeah so in that respect it was a useful tool and maybe that's exactly what paul benefited from so i agree exactly with that advice it's when you it's when you launch into something and you expect a change to be just handled instantly by the body that you're just asking too much very few people can do that yeah and then and then matthew similarly uh wrote and said he's taken to barefoot running and uh, has had fewer knee issues again and i think this is the case i can't remember if we said it on that podcast is that I think barefoot running probably increases ankle and tendon risk. Uh, sorry, yes, ankle, ankle and Achilles, calf, but decreases knee risk. Mm-hmm. So 
if you want to know if you're a candidate for it, if you've got knee issues, you're more likely to take to barefoot running than if you've got calf and Achilles issues. Right. But again, anyone might. you actually might. mentioned that, so that's interesting. Yeah, that's, and, and remember mm-hmm. we spoke about pose running? Yeah. That study found that you reduced the load on the knee. Yes. But you increased the load yeah, on the ankle. Right. And that was like, I remember thinking that's the first clue as to this this thing could actually be a risk factor for some people and just a protective factor. Just move the load to another part of the body. Right. Yeah. And so if you're vulnerable in part A yeah. and you move it to B, maybe you're better off. Mm. But you're invulnerable in B and you move it to B, you've accelerated yeah, the problem. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah you got to be sensible, I think. Mm. But in Matthew, Matthew again, I think, has, has gotten – has not gotten away with it. He's done it successfully. But he did raise the, the big challenge, and I remember this. We didn't talk about this, is that running down steep hills barefoot is really difficult mm. because it's very hard not to land on your heel yeah. and the, the jarring motion because, you know, you tend to lean back to try and decelerate. And you get the slap. And then you get that slap on the yeah. front of the foot. So you, you hit your heel hard and then the front of your foot slaps. I remember when I used to do it, if you come to the bottom, I'd rather run a 1K, 2K loop just to get no hill than go straight down the shortest route. Yeah. It's really difficult. Yeah, modern technology does work in that respect. Yeah. <laughs> so, Cushioning <laughs> so, um, is good. He says actually eventually what happened was he broke a toe because what would happen is you, you can you can adjust your technique. You, you sink your hips a little. You mm. sit down and you have to change your stride rate, mm. much faster steps in order to try and bring the landing point mm. back. But then it causes fatigue and eventually mm. you can't lift your feet up. And I guess he was running on the trails or something, but he broke a toe. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and so that was kind of the end of his yeah. aggressive barefoot phase. I suppose they always question people say, oh, yeah, back in the back in our ancestral days, we were running barefoot through the across the plains yes. and hunting down animals. But I mean, we were but running across plains, were not you? to tar <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> exactly. The steepest thing you had to jump down was an embankment into yes. a dry riverbed. Yes. And that's exactly what Matthew said. He says... Uh, he says, you always hear this about our ancestors and the running they did, but did they run structured running on mm. the surfaces we did over the mm. gradients that we did mm. as often and as fast as we did? Like, mm. that's the other thing is they weren't running half marathons in sub-90. No. They didn't have to, so they didn't. No. They were just jogging along and to wear were, down the animal. And a lot of it was walking and then mm. run, walk, run, walk, run. So that's another example of how people come to this debate with um, – this paleo paleo perception or paleo mm. lens, but mm. they selectively choose which elements they want to borrow from. I mean, we don't we don't live in a paleo world, so you shouldn't really be applying the principles. So anyway, he made a good point, and I thought it worth sharing. So, yeah, it's yeah. good stuff. It's good to debate. And yeah, keep keep contacting us about these if you've listened to a podcast of ours uh, from you know a year ago or two years ago. We're always lovely to. Uh, we know have a lot of people who. Uh, get onto our podcast platform, listening to one podcast, and they'll go through other ones that they're interested in. So don't be embarrassed if you want to contact us about something that we did a year ago. We're always interested to hear your feedback uh, if you're listening to us. So on to the subject of the day. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So one of the interesting uh, parts of our job is we get to have a lot of interaction, as Ross has just mentioned, with um, people who bring up and highlight certain aspects 
of sport, which we can then turn into a podcast. And uh, Ross was involved in a very interesting discussion around a tweet from a tweet from a guy called Danny Care, and this is how it read. <laughs> I've just watched our son play in a school rugby festival where no scores were recorded or any knockout rounds or winners, etc. Most parents seem fairly confused as to why, as in other sports at this age, under age and under nine, competition is normally encouraged. I'm interested to hear people's opinions on this. Now, as you'll see, and we'll put the link to this uh, Twitter conversation that happened after that, and Ross has responded um, in quite some detail, but it really just opens the floodgates mm-hmm. of stories that... When I first read that tweet, I thought you were going to say competition is, is critical. But when I read your response to that, you're actually saying that competition actually isn't critical at a young age. Yeah. Yeah. So just a couple of things. So first, explain yourself. The first context there that matters, and, and it'll, it'll come clear in a moment, is Danny Kerr is a former England rugby player. Mm. In fact, I don't think he quite made 100 tests for England, but it was close. So that's a... It's one of the best ever scrum off that England's produced, right? So he's looking at his kid. I guess it's his. Did he, did he say that? I yes, he says, watch my son. Play. Yeah. Yeah. He's looking at that through the lens. He's come through this pathway and he's reached the very top of that pathway. He's elite. Of the elite, he's at the top of the elite pile. Mm. And so that's the lens through, he, he's, through which he is watching his son play sport. And so it's interesting to see his perceptions. In, in this response to him, and it was a tweet got a lot of attention, number of coaches and other players weighed in and you could pretty much characterize the the um attitude towards competition into groups of people who work in youth development mm. who were saying no no competition is the way to go at that age like you don't want them to play have fun teachers you know and he's teachers, talking under eight under nine yeah so it's eight or yeah. nine year olds yeah, yeah so teachers are saying no 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 we don't want the competition then you get the the rabid fan who says for instance that this is just you know, like academic navel gazing, denying our kids competition. We're making them soft. It's all this wokeness, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> and then you get like sort of people who are a little bit more, tr- trying to be a little bit more sensible about this and explain some of the dangers of competition. And so I think the point I would make is that it's not, it's not that competition is bad. It's the focus on competition and the consequences of having a competition. Because the moment you have a competition, you create ranking and a hierarchy and what a ranking does is it sucks your resources in certain directions. It has to, right? If you didn't have a ranking, you wouldn't have any requirement to put certain people in one place compared to another, mm-hmm. certain coaches with one player compared to, or certain players with one coach relative to another, playing in different leagues, playing in different standard of competitions, getting different training times. Does it, you, know, you know, see what yeah. I'm getting at? Yeah. So, the, the source, the root of resource allocation is hierarchy. Mm. Um, you know, think back to when so, you were so at in school. So in other words, the better the performance, the resources go to the, the better we, performance naturally. We reward, we reward right. excellence. Right. That's what the Olympics does. It rewards excellence you know, with a medal that's actually not worth all that much. Mm. But it rewards excellence. If you make the final at the Olympic Games, you get more money which means that the next Olympic Games, you're going to make the podium, which means that the one after that, you'll be on the top of the podium. So yeah. the whole model for sport is like, let's find excellence and reward it. Remember when you had your school sports days? In fact, I don't know what it's like for your daughter now. I know you went to a school sports thing of hers recently. Well, she won the egg and spoon race. <laughs> True story. I'm glad it was the egg and spoon race <laughs> and not the 100 meter A final. <laughs> because that, you see, having it as an egg and spoon race means she's doing sport, but she doesn't know that. No. Nah. 
She doesn't know it, but she is. But she also cool, loved fun. the fact that she won it, which right. is the reason so, why I'm hitting down. And I'm glad you raised that yeah, because so, even though she's five years old, yeah, she was very chuffed with the fact that she won yes. the Egan Spoon race. And, so, and this is this is really important. Those kids that he's watching there, they may not be keeping score and having knockout rounds or anything mm. like that. Those kids know who's winning. A lot of people yes, replied to my true. tweet saying the kids know who's winning. I'm like, yeah, of course they do. Obviously, they're not. They're not Labradors. <laughs> they, they know. They know who's winning. So mm. the children already know that. So it's not about winning and losing. Even the adults know who's winning or losing. It's about whether you make a commitment to act on the result. Mm. Because the action you take on the result is the thing that then drives decisions that ultimately are harmful not only to an individual but to the whole system. And mm. That's where. That's where I think it gets interesting. So remember at school, like I remember this. Even first day of high school now, when I'm 12, 13 years old, we have school track day, 100 meter race. Everyone runs top three. You're in the athletic squad. Everyone else go try 1500. <laughs> I don't know if you yeah, had that. Yeah, absolutely. It's like I that. Remember right? it very well. Swimming day at, at primary school. I remember swimming day. Swim 25 meters. Okay. Everyone who finished the top half stay. Everyone else. Yes. Go All sit the in losers. The, go sit in the stands. Yes. Now you see the problem with that is now it's not it's not about hurting people's feelings. Like, I don't particularly care about that. The problem with that is you're making a decision that has significant future implications for the people who are selected and the people who are not selected. Mm -hmm. And that decision is too strong and irreversible to be made at that age. That's the problem. So in other words, when you so, cut those, the losing crowd, right. you basically cut them out of the system straight away with no chance of a cut. And a lot of systems do that. Now, you could argue, okay, you can... Because the moment you pick, mm. you deselect. Selection is one side of a coin. It's not this, you know what I mean? Like, mm. so, mm. so competition is really important. But if you act on competition to allocate your budget, maybe your budget is time, people, facilities, and money. Mm -hmm. And if you're making that commitment to draw up a budget effectively and saying these athletes, these players, these teams, if it's knockouts, some teams would get more games than others at the age of eight or nine. Mm -hmm. Some kids are going to get to play uh, 120 minutes a week and other kids are going to play 20. And so right from the beginning, you're rewarding something with the assumption that those people who get the reward are the ones who are destined to be better. But you create that destiny. You create a self-fulfilling prophecy because you start giving them more and more and more. And everyone that you left behind doesn't really ever get the chance to catch back up. And so when you do that at the age of eight, I mean, you may as well toss a coin. But are really? they, I, I mean, the, 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 the cynics will look at this and say, well, if you're not showing promise at the age of eight or nine, what chance are you have of being good when you're 16, 17? Doesn't, doesn't that early promise then result in a later well, achievement? I think that's what people have gotten drunk on a little bit is the, is the early, the prodigy. Like yeah. if you don't show something early on and we think about... Charlie Woods. <laughs> Charlie now, but Tiger before, right? Like, mm. it's the same thing. You see how people have fallen into the same trap. The problem with it is, is like, okay, Tiger did become, he went from the Bob Hope show. Correct. As a, four, what was he, four? Yes. He went from the Hitting Bob Hope show. He into a washing machine, the he, Bob he, Hope show, didn't he? Didn't, think, he hit, didn't he chip a ball into a washing machine? I think it was that, some, I don't know if that was like the Bob that. Hope, but, but he, he, did the, he did the rounds. Yes. And people were like enraptured by this kid who could right. play golf at a level of an adult and sure enough he became he became Tiger Woods <laughs> mm. but there are 99 cases like that that don't and you don't see those because they're not on the Bob Hope shows 
You know, and that's the problem. So, so we we look back. So you're saying those early speciali- specialists are actually the rarity. Yeah, they're the unicorns. They really are. Like, and mm. if you if you're not mindful of that and you fall into that trap, which I think a lot of people do, is you overinvest in those early developers. Because remember, at the age of eight, there's so many things that could affect how you show that talent. So, what, what is the norm then, as a as a counterpoint to that? Then the norm is that the, people. The, the, the most successful sports people are later developers. Yeah, so the norm is to play as much as you can for as long as you can, diversify, establish like a wide range, be exposed to as much as possible, and learn as many complementary skills as you possibly can by playing as many sports as you possibly can. Mm. And then as you get older and physiology plays its hand, then you can start making that call. And so it's, it's quite, if anyone who's ever had kids or seen kids, or I mean, you've done, done it yourself, when you go through adolescence, you change. And those changes that happen to you are the things that set ceilings on what you can achieve, or they remove the ceiling from what you thought you might have achieved. Some people are really short at 14 and really tall at 18. Yeah. And then that opens up a different set of sporting possibilities to them, as opposed to someone who was an early developer, very tall at 16, and the same height as at 18. Yeah. Or 14. Some, some kids reach their peak height at the age of about 15. So in other words, early developers in theory so in other words that young 16 year old that's tall at 16 is performing well relative to his age group because if he's tallness in basketball or whatever yeah and suddenly he becomes normal at 18 correct and remember height is one element of biological maturation so there's other elements that probably are happening in conjunction with height so he's probably disproportionately stronger faster more powerful and he may even he may even have acquired tactical understandings ahead of his peers because he's just an earlier developer. Mm. But on the physical side, for sure, his height, his arm length, his muscle mass, his sta- everything about him, his strength, speed, stamina, skill, may be that of a 16-year-old when he's 14. And he's playing against kids who are 14 and they have the maturation levels of a 12, 13-year-old. Yeah. Now, the coach looks at that and you see there's no metric that allows you to well, some people think they can actually measure that now. It's really interesting, and we'll get one on the show at some point. But the coach is then picking based on ability, and he then deselects all these kids who, but for one or two years' worth of more of opportunity, would have been just as good, if not better. And that's the mistake that's made. Now, now ask what happens at eight or nine. Because mm. now you not only have that development issue, biological development, but the difference between an eight-year-old born in January and an eight-year-old born in December is basically a full year of their life, 13%. Yeah. So, so on average, a kid who's born early in the year is much older, lit- literally yes. in time, than a kid born in December, yet they compete against one another. Yes. That's in, by the way, this is in South Africa where the school year goes January to December and the cutoff is literally the 31st of December. That's right. Yeah. In, in some European countries, it's the 1st of September. Yeah. And so my niece, for instance, is an August baby and they're cut off, I think, September. So she is by far the youngest in her class. Mm. She's, in, she's in class with people born one month after her, September, but the year before. Mm. And Which so, is a huge difference. At and the and age I mean, I, we saw this. Six, like, I saw yeah. this with her. Like, she was, she was one of the slowest to pick up reading and maths and science skills. Now that she's gotten a little head of steam, she's really good at it. She's mm. doing really well. But she was being asked to do things that a seven-year-old, six-year-old was doing when she was five, basically. Mm. Five in one month. I think Malcolm Gladwell might have written about this. Yeah, he did. About, he did. So, yeah. And it's called the relative age That's effect. Right. And he called it the Matthew effect after a, a 
parable in the Bible where those who have much will be given more. Mm. And it's basically saying, exactly as you put it earlier, is that you now start to say, look, here's someone who's expressing that ability. Let's give them more opportunity, more money, more resource, more coaching, better coaching, more competition, more facilities, more equipment. Yeah. And, you, and then a nine-year-old, like, it's nuts. It's, mm. it's impossible to predict who's going to be successful from the age of nine, in, in rugby especially. Yeah. And so, so back to Danny Kerr, the, the point I would make is that at that age, you should be trying to expose as many people for as long as possible as you can, right? Mm. And that means not necessarily shouldn't have competition. And I don't necessarily agree that you shouldn't have a scoreboard, but you should never act on it. Mm. You never ever act and say, this is the best team. And because they were the best team, they're now going to get something more. That's the mistake. Mm. And I think what they've done in England is they've cut it off before that can ever happen. Does that mm. make, does that make yeah. sense? Well, here's an interesting one. Um, Eddie Jones, and I'm mm. going to play you a little clip here, yeah. um, talks about this uh, issue. One of the problems we've got in sport at the moment, and I can probably speak more about rugby than any other sport, is that we've got a lot of kids now not being taught by teachers, sport. They're being taught by ex-players. And I think it's a, it's a fundamental flaw in education. You need, you know, kids need to be taught um, and they don't need to be coached at an early age. Um, and we're, we're trying to turn high school teams into high-performance teams where they should be just development teams. That's one of my probably one of my bugbears at the moment. Well, I said I was going to share with this as a clip you actually shared with me. Yeah. But Eddie Jones, they're yeah. talking specifically about the fact that there are former professionals yeah. coaching young children. Right, and, and I would have loved to hear the rest of that because I, I got mm. from that clip, clip and again yeah. we'll put it up. Well, you've heard it, but if you watched it, you'd see the guy asking a question was, was ready to pull the trigger on a follow-up, and then the video ends. And I would love to hear the rest of it. But mm. I th- you see, Eddie, Eddie's a, Eddie's a teacher, mm. you know? He comes at it from that perspective. Um, and I think the point he's making there is that if you come to young kids with a professional mindset, like I dare say Danny Care is, then it's very hard to understand like, that kids don't need your paradigm on their mm. sport. And that's, mm. I think, what Eddie's saying. There's, and there's little decisions you make, little sliding doors moments all the time, I think, that you would make. And like to give credit, the English rugby system, I think, is quite good like this. They've got a number of really good coaches who are working to try and de-emphasize the consequences of competition. And please note, I'm not saying it's the consequences of competition because, like you said, with your daughter in her, in her egg and spoon race, your kid is already competitive. Yeah. Those kids that are playing rugby with Danny Kerr's son, they're already competitive. They know who's won. But if you make the competition the focus, then when one team has scored eight tries and the other team scores its first try, they're not happy. Mm. But if you watch kids play, when, when one team scored eight and the other team scores one, they celebrate as though they've won the game. Yeah. Because for the, you've seen this, right? Yes. They all go bananas. It's lo- yeah, and it's and, lovely. It's and that's what you that. need them to do at that age because mm. you want it, – it's just – and it's again, it's not about hurting people's feelings and about being woke. It's because you want every one of those 30 kids or t- what, 20 kids, I don't know how much, how many they play aside at that age. It might be seven aside for all I know. Mm. Every one of those kids, you want to be playing rugby for at least three or four more years mm. before you can even start to think about making a decision about whether this one or that one should be picked to play rugby up to the age of 18. Mm. And to do it earlier is nuts. I mean, another one for you is, here in South Africa, we've got a problem with this. Our mm. school sports system is definitely too competitive, too young. Yep. To the extent that kids are being scouted in primary school to get 
adult um, high school contracts. And very shocker, we talked about this in past yeah, podcasts. Yes. Yeah, yeah, because it's so competitive. They don't five care. year olds being picked by clubs. Yeah, and mm. it's because it's so competitive. They don't care if they waste talent. So the individual isn't important to them. They they'll lo- they'll they will splurge ninety nine kids to find one little messy. Yeah, it's worth it for them. You see, and that's the problem. Is like they're almost victims of their own resource abundance. Mm. But but in South Africa, we've got under 13, like interprovincial state, county, whatever you want to call it, championships. It's called Craven Week. Yeah. The, the data that's been gathered from that, because it goes under 13 Craven Week, under 16, under 18. So we have three youth grades for Craven Week. Of, the, of every thousand players who play under 13, only 240 will make it to under 18. Wow. So it's a 76% inefficiency in that system that's 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 a good stat so okay so here's where it gets really interesting from 13 to 16 90 percent of that loss happens Hmm. so 700 let's say it's 760 get lost 730 out of those drop out from 13 to 16 and that's and then from development area exactly exactly from 16 to 18 if you've made it to 16, the chances you'll make it to 18 are very high. Mm. But from 13 to 16 is a tr- precipitous drop-off. Mm. Why? Exactly as you say. Because that's the period over which the physiological hand is dealt, or the cards are shown, as it were. And if yeah. you didn't have it, you just don't make it. Because what's ha- think about a coach now who's incentivized at under 13 to go and win that competition. Who's mm. he picking? He's picking the biggest, the fastest, and the strongest guys yes. at the age of 12, 13 years old. <laughs> By 15, those are no longer the biggest, fastest, strongest guys. But because they've never had to learn skill mm-hmm. and fight for place, they've, they've relied on something that's not earned, but merely mm. theirs by virtue of early yeah. development, yeah. they now get surpassed by all the kids who catch up. Mm. So there's two ways to look at that. One is to say that 1,000 start and only 240 come out at the end. But at the end, there have to still be a thousand. Yeah. So seven hundred and sixty have to come in from somewhere else, and that's why it's a stupid system if you overinvest young, because those seven hundred and sixty are now having to come into that system without the re- resources that you've given the the chosen few at too young an age. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So so the system's <laughs> actually upside down mm. in that in South African rugby, definitely. And it's so now, entrenched that system. It's I mean, impossible to not change. Any, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, around the world, I'm sure sports like this. I mean, it's not just South African rugby or British soccer. Yeah. The demand. Yeah. I mean, British soccer around these cl- top clubs looking for six and seven year olds mm. that they can sign up for Arsenal and those sort of places is, is a major problem and that's becoming even worse now mm-hmm. um, as the professional era kicks in yeah exactly yeah. Um, yeah. and again it's because the younger you go the more speculative the bet mm. is mm. and therefore the cheaper it is if you waited to 14 15 to buy a youngster he'd cost more than if you bet on him at 9 or 10 and so they put the money on them at nine or ten, knowing that it's cheap enough that if they place a hundred bets and one comes off, it'll pay for the other ninety-nine and then some. And so the whole system is incentivized to drive it younger and younger and younger. And it's actually not the most effective way to do it. Like what you should be doing. And remember, now we're talking from thirteen to sixteen to eighteen. Imagine how much more profoundly crazy that early bet is at the age of eight or nine. So I again, guess in that, that, that situation, parents are probably one of the biggest problems because. If your little Johnny has been picked by 
Arsenal as a nine-year-old, you're going to be like, oh yeah, that's great. He's got this potential mm. as a nine-year-old. You're not going to stop no, you're going him to from going. It. You're going to encourage yeah. it because maybe there's yeah. money involved. You know, it's it's a difficult one to turn back. So you almost have to almost legislate the situation so they don't. They're not allowed <laughs> to. Yeah, but no, and no yeah. parent is going to say, oh, here's the chance of a contract with a professional football team, and you know that the players in that team are making £150,000 a week, mm. and you're going to say, no, 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 I don't think that's the best thing for you. You know, it's, parents are going to do it. They yeah. should. But it's that road to hell thing, right? Paved with good intentions. And again, different and, sports are different because in gymnastics, you've got yeah. athletes that are, that are world class at 12, 13. Mm. Um, and they have to be really good at eight or nine. Yes. Otherwise, they're not because they're retiring by seventeen. Yeah. So you so must in be that respect. There's a, you, they can't cost uh, put a blanket over all sports and say all sports should have an age limit because different sports have different. No, and sw- swimming's probably the same. You have yeah. to start swimming really young, and then you have to learn the technical competency of swimming, so that as you then reach your physical maturation development, like. Phelps at the age of 15 into his mid-20s, you then peak. Mm. But if you haven't acquired that early, then maybe you can't necessarily get there. But And it's not... Look, I'm not saying that you should not let kids play sports and then hope that they can pick something up at 14, 15. They still... You know, those 760 players who've got to come in and replace the, the dropouts, as it were, in the South African rugby system, they still have to have been playing rugby. Mm. So you still got to expose people to that sport. And again, coming back to Danny Kerr's initial tweet, the problem is that the more you comp- the more you incentivize and reward and focus on competition, the more you cut off that body of athletes underneath that actually are your later rivals. You know, so I, I used to present to sports on this and used to say you get your 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 early arrivals, those are your early maturation folk, the eight or nine year old who's shaving. <laughs> okay, not maybe maybe twelve years old. Big guy, broad shoulders, fast, strong, powerful, as at the physical level of a 15, 16 year old, and he's yeah. only 12. He's the early arrival. Very few of those make it to 18, let alone adult. Mm. I mean, the drop from 18 to adult is even bigger. I mean, it's like one in a thousand sometimes makes it there, depending on your sport, right? Yeah. I spoke once, um, a woman who's in charge of US tennis development said that in her time there, they'd had 500 girls come into the academy, and only three made the top 50. Wow, that's the that's the hit rate. I mean, it is so low from junior into senior sport. It is incredibly difficult because, but but on that stat, you you would that is, I mean, you would expect a much higher return on your investment in any in any space. That's a big drop off. But the dilemma for that system, right, is you have to direct your 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 resources sometime somewhere. You've got to make that call, right? Because you can't support three hundred people. You can only support thirty. Mm. So how do you make that 10% selection? You've got to, and at some point you've got to do something. And this is where it's tricky. It's trade-offs. You've, you you want, in, in the case of rugby, eight or nine, you don't want to make a call. You want everyone play. You don't want to have specialist coaches. You don't have anything to do with resource demand. You just want people to have fun, expose them. Mm. And then as they get a little bit older, you start to make selections because then selections drive budgets. Mm. Where do I put my people, my money, my time, my equipment, my competition, you know? But by the time you get to 15, 16, now you have to start making important calls. But the the key is you want to keep people viable for as long as possible. Mm. And that's the that's the message there. But yeah, it's it's a... Um, well, the example that you mentioned before we did the podcast is the Nordic countries, mm. uh, Norway and Sweden, mm. are actually actively doing this. Yeah. Um, where they're literally bringing out, they're not making sport competitive. And I guess the question is, that's great, but are they still producing 
champions that are able to participate to the highest level and 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 the answer actually is yes because those countries have done very well in sports particularly in the winter olympics yeah. where they are specialists and where they have the strengths um so despite this making the sport less competitive at a young age they, they're not seeing in fact they might be producing what you want to do is you want to say yes there are more athletes coming through to the high level yeah, because of this yeah. system yeah so the scandinavian countries are interesting norway um you know dominate winter olympic sports and you mm-hmm. can say that winter olympic sports is so niche there's only a dozen countries in the world really doing the nordic events this mm-hmm. cross-country skiing the biathlons and so on but whenever they do well in the olympics people say oh these guys are so good it's such a mm-hmm. tiny country and the answer is they have Obviously, major wealth, it helps. Yes. <laughs> it helps a lot. Um, but they also have 93% of their kids taking part regularly in sports. You know, and that's like, mm. maybe people will disagree. I don't believe that happens if you overemphasize competition. It, you know, almost 50% is the highest you'll get. Like, it's how do you, how do you reward and have hugely competitive sport and half the kids yeah, not happening. Mm. So that's the first thing. And then it's been said they don't keep score in games involving small kids. And I would say that small is up to the age of about 10, 11. From then on, you, you say, okay, again, the kids know the score. Mm. But it's not the score itself that's the problem. It's the decisions made on the basis of the score. Mm. What do you do next? You know, and, and why? Like that's, that's where it becomes a problem. And so I'm all for not scoring up to the age of 10. After that... You start to score because you have to. I mean, at some point, you can't keep 400 kids alive in, yeah. in sport. Yeah. So you've got to say, we can keep 150. Mm. The other 250, we don't want to lose them. Let's, let's play football and mm. maybe a little bit less rugby, but we still want them playing. Mm. And then by the time you get to 13, 14, you get your early developers. And that's the most dangerous part because that's where you can really be... Uh, intoxicated by early development mm. and you start making these picks too soon. I guess the secondary, and this is something close to my heart because the secondary benefit of this is that if young children are able to play for sport for longer, we know that most of these children, no matter how good they are, probably never going to be professional sportsmen. I think 1% less than that are going oh, to yeah. take it to less. The, much less. Mm. So the majority you want to become people that are healthy, active individuals throughout their lives. Yeah. And by extending their time in the sport without pushing them out straight away. And I know this from when I was at school. If you didn't show any potential, you just didn't play it. Or you were put in a D team and put on the wing somewhere, which is not where I was. Um, so I was never going to be a rugby player because from a very early age, I was literally, you know, there was no chance of doing that. Yes, I found running and swimming to be my sports of choice at school. But the reality was, even if I'd become a good rugby player later in life, from, from the age of 12, I was already told I wasn't any good. And I think that's the benefit is that once you keep kids in sport, you keep them active for longer, you keep them enjoying sport, they, they're part of sport because they enjoy it and they focus on that, mm. less about competition. Yeah. And therefore... Hopefully they keep doing it for the rest of their lives. Exactly, which is really, what you want. Exactly. So, so when you say, and this was this came up in the care care debate um, now with a tweet, people saying, you know, you want them to be active, and if you don't teach them competitive um, elements of sports and how to lose, then they won't be active long in life. It's actually the other way around because, again, it's not the competition. This is where I think people got hooked on that word. It's the consequence of competition is the specialization and the yeah. drive that the. the 
almost the, the, the inertia it creates to have to do better, specialize, train more, more intensely, take it more seriously. And your impression is exactly borne out by research. One of the best guys in this field is a guy called Nero Gianti. He's an American MD who's done a lot of work on sports specialization, particularly in tennis, incidentally. He's a bit of a tennis fan. I think I met him at a conference a couple of times. I think his wife was a really top level NCAA college um, tennis player. And he's done these studies where they've done these case controls and they've asked, how likely is someone to play tennis into their adulthood and get injured as a function of how young and they specialize? In other words, at what age do they make a commitment to tennis and how much do they train? And I'll read you one conclusion. Our study confirms that over time, Young athletes, and in particular young female athletes, were more likely to be injured and sustain an overuse injury if they had a high degree of sports specialization. Similarly, athletes whose training hours exceeded their age or whose sports hours exceeded their free play by a factor of greater two were more likely to develop injuries and overuse injuries. <laughs> so the point is, play more than you train yeah. and don't train too much. It's interesting, you're saying sports hours exceeded their free play and whose training hours exceeded their age, that's per week. So there's a rule of thumb for you. It's great. Yeah. Like an eight-year-old shouldn't be pl- eight hours a week for an eight-year-old. See, I don't do that now. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't do 53 hours a week. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's that curve only works up to about up the to end of school. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that, there's a rule of thumb, and and if your if your sports hours exceed your free play, then you're at risk. Yeah. So play. Don't compete yeah so so again it's like all the, all the stars like uh, line up in the same direction here like your mm-hmm. injury risk now he's got other papers i'll post one or two in the show notes looking at later in life prospects of being physically active your mm-hmm. your chances of being physically inactive which is bad are way higher if you specialize younger because mm-hmm. you give up the sport and then you never find another one because you've only ever done one thing yeah expose people to five and they'll have five things to choose from when they're 42. Yeah. That's the point. And so point, yeah. everything aligns. And then, so there's, there's so many reasons to, to say that to the guy like Danny cares. Like, Danny, I get you, you're competitive. It's what made you who you were. But there's a better way to do this than just letting kids compete and, and creating a survival of the fittest in, in eight, nine-year-olds. Yeah. And then one, one other thing is a guy called Russell Earnshaw responded to Danny and said, you know, like, you can actually have performance incentives in kids but they can just be thought of maybe more creatively like maybe reward kids for passing five times in a row without dropping the ball yes reward them for executing a tactical or a technical skill successfully like a successful line out throw or catching a kick or something you know so that the process becomes mm. part of what you reward and it's interesting actually when you watch elite players they do everything they can to de-emphasize the scoreboard too. They still live and die by it. Yes. And like at a World Cup, now rugby this year, football last, the coach is going to get fired unless they win <laughs> or make a final. Maybe they'll be sympathetic. Sometimes not even then. But you'll see an interview and you'll say, you know what, like we just, we're not worried about the scoreboard. We're just going to stick to the five things we know we need to do well. We're going to try to stop them in three areas. And it's like a process-driven sure. approach. So why would we now say to kids, it's the scoreboard, when actually even in adults we try and understand that it's not? And I remember interviewing a couple of you know, famous athletes over the years, Donovan Bailey once interviewing him and I asked him, how does he deal with the pressure yeah, of yeah. a 100 meter final? And he just said, well, I've just got to treat it like any other final mm. in that I just do my best. And if it's not good enough, it's not good enough. Yeah, and they're segmented, the right? So yeah. they'll say, okay, did I start well? And they'll mm. have their technical cues that they've worked with with their coach. That's right. 
And like even now, this, this work I'm doing in Stellenbosch, we're saying, okay, let's let's not analyze the results. So kid runs a 424, 1500. Mm. That, that's good or bad. I mean, we know. He knows. Mm. If it's a PB, it's good. If it's not and he came third, it's bad. He knows this already. But can we analyze the race in a different way? Can we say, was your positioning good through the first lap? Did you then get yourself in a good position with 300 meters to go? Like, was your finish good? Did you show character in the race? So you can start incentivizing different things, knowing that you're on a, you're facing the right direction. And just because you're not where you want to be doesn't mean you're bad. You know, you know what I mean? Like, so I think, well, I, think, I mean, your example, and for the listeners who've been listening to our podcast, Ross is working with the former silver medalist in the Olympic Games in 92, Lana Mayer, with a development project out in Stellenbosch. So my question to you is, in that respect, how do you select those younger athletes and for that project to try and produce champions at the end of the day? Yeah. Because so you, you're right there at the that's, coal face of this. Yeah, and that's this quarter's big, you know, quarter one, and we could do a podcast on the cool stuff we, I think is cool we've been doing. Yeah. Quarter one was all about developing an injury ID and a management system for in illness and injury. Like, what do we do when an athlete's sick or injured? How quickly can we respond? Who do we go to? It's like, because that, that's the biggest thing that'll derail them. Mm. Semester two now, which has just begun, is how do we best identify talent for next year? Because we've we've gotten permission now to add 22 athletes to the squad, so we're going to have to go in July, August, September, and find these 22 kids mm. from 13 and older. Most of them be 14, 15, 16. So that that's, so that's that's the task, isn't it? Yeah. So that's going to be really interesting. So there's a, there's a, there are psychological and emotional and physical components to it, mm. and you, you probably will have to segment. And I don't know this because we haven't done it yet. We had our meeting yesterday to plan it, but. You, one of the things will be, and this might seem paradoxical to listeners, is I will look for who's competitive mm. in like other races. Like if there's 50 meters to go and you get passed, do you concede or do you fight to the line to the extent that you tie up and lose by even more? <laughs> I'd rather yeah. have the guy who fights, at, you know what I mean, at the cost of losing his form. Because mm. you, want, you want someone with a bit of internal drive who mm. doesn't like losing. But then at the same time, you need someone who's got a positive attitude towards it. So that's the emotional, psychological side but of you things. But you still need some baseline athletic ability. Right. So that's not that, that's easier to find in athletics than it is to find in, yeah. in team sports, right? Because if you can run a 453 seconds at the age of 15, you've got enough. That's your 800 meter guy, potentially, right? If you can run a 848, 3000 at, mm. 50, at 17 mm. or 16, maybe there's something enough to develop, you know? So it's quite easy to pick the, the 202 14 year old and 800 compared to the 212 <laughs> it's yeah. not a hard decision where it gets difficult is two guys at 205 206 what do you pick then mm. and then you want to say okay these two kids 15 years old running 206 one of them's been training for four years one of them's training for one i'm picking the one yeah obviously right i'm looking at biological age like one of them is looks developed like a 17 year old the other one looks like a 12 year old pick the younger looking one mm. you know and there are incidentally measures you can measure bone age relative bone age um as a guide to this kind of thing now i don't know that we i don't want to become deterministic by some tool but but this is the kind of thing you have to ask is you're trying to the, the dilemma with talent id is you're assessing today in order to predict tomorrow based on what was created yesterday. Yes. So, so you, never know, you, ever, you never know which direction you're facing mm. um, because, because current performance is past tense created and future performance predictive. Mm. 
and unless you can try and understand the past, the present, and the future, like it's very, it's impossible. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, that did I did I answer your question yes, there? Yes, kind so, of. But I'd I'd be interested at that later. Yeah, we've, we've got to we've got to develop. I know you can't share the details of a plan a program because obviously there is some element of uh, confidentiality there. But it'd be no, interesting not, to understand the concept. I, I'll share them. I'll share them when I've got them. I just I literally don't have yeah. <laughs> yeah. answers for it. I mean, yeah. I know I have a battery of tests in mind that we will take on a road show. And I know like that Ilana in particular has got such a close eye on the results of SA and provincial junior results and so on. And she's got a list, a wish list almost of athletes that she'd like to speak to. Mm. But until you meet them and their parents, you don't know because the parents, the parents might be the decisive thing. Because mm. if you've got that exceptionally pushy parent, you know you're going to take a child who's just going to be burdened by the demands of their parents, now, especially now they get a scholarship and they're coming to run. You don't want that on top of everything else for this poor kid. Yeah. Sure. So, so it's, it's complicated. It is very complicated. Yeah. And, and again, in response to the care thing, a lot of people say, you know, this is, we're just, we're just making soft, non-winning, non happy losers. That's, that's what we're doing by having this mindset of let them play, let them have fun, don't worry about the score. It's going to make an army of happy losers. And it's yeah. not, it's it's not, not the, the case. case. Like right. We don't have to be so intense. Mm. There will be a point in their lives where things get very intense for them. <laughs> They're not going to escape that. <laughs> but it's not, at, it's not at the age of eight or nine. No. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. There are some lovely thoughts there, and I think it's uh, yeah, it's been quite inspiring to actually just talking about this. And for those of you who have young children, it is, it's a mindset that changed yeah, just this discussion has changed my mindset a lot about sport because there's always this belief, no matter what you think, that yes, kids must have fun. Yes, fun is the first component of that. But you also sometimes vicariously want to live through your children, which you have to be very careful of as a parent. Someone, that you don't try and let yeah. your kids be what you want Speaking to be. Speaking of, someone told us, was it, was it Warren? We've got a mate who rides with us who's mm. a rugby ref. Yes. He ref school games. Didn't he tell us, or was it Simon, one of our writing mates said that at the start of a school rugby year, the parents get a code of conduct for the side of the field. Do you remember that? Were you at that? Mm, I, you there? I don't remember that, but that sounds... But that, that's done quite a lot now. I've seen it actually in a couple of places since okay. where the parents get a code of conduct and they try hard to actually enforce this because they recognize that helicopter parenting and the, aggress sure. the aggression from the sidelines towards yeah, I've seen the referees and the coach. Like if, if, <laughs> if the coach pulls a kid off at the 46th minute of a game and that kid is like, the parents go ballistic on the mm. side of the field. And that's mm. so toxic for everyone. I mean, what message to any, anyone observing is that sending? So again, that's only happening because this, the emphasis is too excessively on the scoreboard. Yeah. And so what you should be doing is mixing teams, at, at eight or nine, okay, you can't do that in high school, obviously. Mixing teams, letting everyone play the same amount of time in as many positions as possible. Everyone must experience what it's like to kick and catch and tackle and pass and so on and have fun. And then the parents must actually just also buy in. But if you, like, the biggest problem is the parents. Oh, uh, yeah. And based on some <laughs> of the responses to Care's tweets, I feel yeah. sorry for a lot of kids out there. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so let us know what you think. It's a topic which anybody with a parent, with any child that's showing any promise in sport is uh, very emotive. And we'd love to hear what your comments are. Don't forget you can follow us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com. Look for Science of Sport Podcast. You can uh, support us there. Also, don't forget we're on Twitter as Sports SciPod. Let us know what you think about our podcast. Uh, but for now, it's goodbye. 
follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.